the skepticism and the debate around whether personas are useful comes from this misapplication, the miss of the methodology. The goal of these personas is just to make decisions easier. The positioning should be clear when you know the problems. The channels that'll be affected become clear when you know the problems. And if you can't remember it, it's too complicated. You're listening to Customer Show, the podcast that explores what makes people tick, click, and buy. I'm your host, Caitlin Burgoyne. I'm a marketer by trade and a four-time founder by choice. And I believe whoever gets closer to the customer wins. So here's the multi-million dollar question. In a world where everyone is fighting for your buyer's attention, how do people like us marketers and entrepreneurs who want to drive more sales without working around the clock or resorting to shady marketing techniques, how do we persuade more customers to buy from us? That's the question, and this show has the answers. What's the one thing that all successful businesses have in common? I'll give you a hint. It's opinionated, highly intelligent, and sometimes seems downright irrational. If you've already guessed that I'm talking about customers, then you're totally right. Companies need customers to stay afloat, but not every company treats their customers the same way. Some companies are still trying to figure out exactly who their customers are, while others are obsessed with their customers and use customer insight to guide every decision they make as a business. For instance, Jeff Bezos actually keeps a chair empty at his boardroom table when they're making decisions. He argues that this ensures that Amazon never loses sight of who's really in charge, the customer. Few business owners have Jeff's flair for drama, but most leaders understand the value of focusing on a particular customer segment. That's why creating customer personas, personas that represent our ideal buyers, has become such a common practice in many businesses. In this episode, we're going to learn why personas are important, but also why it's just as important to craft personas for the customers you don't want. I brought in a customer-focused marketer who uses negative and anti-personas to help companies grow. I'm joined by Rebecca Sadwick the founder of Strategica Partners. Customer personas, they're actually kind of a touchy subject in the marketing world. Some people love them. Others think they're a huge waste of time. So let's kick off this episode by hearing where Rebecca stands on this great debate. Every single person who has a strong opinion probably is coming from a different place. And the way I see it is it breaks down to the strategy versus the tactics versus the execution, like everything we do in marketing. The way most personas are done, I agree, is useless or even more than useless and that it makes us think we have a decision-making tool and we don't. Sometimes they are way too static. Somebody came up with a persona two years into the company and they don't really get looked at, don't really get updated, and the customer-facing teams aren't really consulted on them. In that case, they are useless. Sometimes they are just dead wrong. If they anchor in demographics, especially in a B2B setting, they are less than useless. It's something like, this is Marketing Mary. She's 34. She has two kids. Her household income is X. She has a college degree. None of that actually tells us how people buy in a B2B setting. People with different genders, different incomes, living on different coasts or in different countries could have identical business needs and business cases. So the demographics are typically very heavily overweighted and I would say should never even come into play unless they're actually driving say, a a fertility product, 
at which point the age and gender of a person would matter. So the way most of them are done is people get into a room, they kind of hypothesize, they throw some stickies on a wall, they say, yeah, that sounds pretty good, clap, 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 goes into a drive somewhere, we never look at it again. That is totally useless, is not a persona, uh, shouldn't be done that way. But if we're actually methodical with researching with current customers and prospects who look like current customers, but in a way that isn't biasing their answers, so starting very high level, making sure that the current customers understand that we're not looking for the use cases around how we currently position our products, but their general workflows, saying nothing about our product to our prospects until we've gotten through their priorities and their workflow, then we dive into how the product could fit into it. Otherwise, you run the risk of people biasing their answers based on what they think you want to hear based on the positioning that you've done. But if we don't have that research and those steps and we don't have actually good personas, which is telling us what people are receptive to, the channels that they're most likely to convert with, how they communicate and share information, we don't even have the foundation for a positioning framework which means we don't even have the foundation for any effective marketing experiments because we don't have any confounding uh, control factors for these confounding variables. If we're running quote-unquote experiments by just kind of throwing up some ads here and running some content there and publishing articles and sending some emails, but we don't have hypotheses that we're methodically testing around who we're sending it to, why they care and what their problems are, which is the goal of the persona, we don't have the foundation of an experiment and we're worse off running experiments, looking at dashboards, thinking we understand because we have all of these unmitigated assumptions around who we're sending to and why. So if we haven't segmented the market, we haven't made that the foundation of our positioning framework, we don't have personas and we don't have a marketing framework. This is so good. And so I think that you, you've summarized a lot, my opinion on it too, this idea that if a persona is coming from a bunch of gut assumptions mm-hmm. and you kind of sitting around and putting stickies on the board, it's not going to be useful. But if it is driven by insight and research and focused on behaviors and what actually motivates people to buy, it's going to be really valuable. So you're talking about segments and leveraging those to figure out experiments, figuring out channels. Tell me what goes into creating those initial persona. So thinking first about the personas of this is who we want to sell to. Walk me through how you go about doing that. So I'll walk you to the end state and then go backwards if that works for you. Because people often ask me, how do you know you've done it enough? And you know you've done this when you can think of a real person and ask yourself what they would think of something. And this is best done when you can think of two real people who have opposite demographics. So a man and a woman is an easy one. Different size companies is another one, depending on how it's being applied. But we, we go through this by trying to replicate and recreate the buying behaviors as authentically and organically as we can, which is why a focus group would never come into this because people don't buy like focus groups. So we go through this by looking at our current user base and the current use cases that we designed for and trying to identify the people who fit into these power users, the ones who are more active than anyone understanding their use cases and why, and working backwards toward recreating what it was that prompted them to buy in the first place, the problems that are being solved, and then making sure we're leveraging that into recreating those channels that be most effective. We also want to look at the different cohorts of people who could be what Andrew Chen calls adjacent users, people who could go either way based on their usage of the product. And we want to understand what it would take to push them into the active acquisition that we're looking to to obtain. So this really needs to anchor first and foremost, 
with the questions of the problem we're trying to solve and qualitative research. The quantitative has to come second and a quantitative could be a survey, but the qualitative really are these longer form interviews trying to recreate the authentic problem set that these users have from their own point of view and not from the point of view that our product fits into them. So we'd ask them questions about the last board meeting they presented out at, what the topics were, the last conversation they had with their boss, their quarterly goals and objectives, how they mapped the business objectives, because there's no shortage of accurate ways to describe what our product does. And there's no shortage of valuable feature roadmap that can come out of it. So what we want to do is come up with the ones that avoid the secondary mediocre positioning, things that people say, yeah, I guess that sounds pretty good. Okay, I see where it's going. Sure, we'd pay for that, but it's not a priority. So you'll kind of stagnate to linear growth. What we want is to find the buying behaviors and the positioning that makes people jump out of their chairs and say, yes, I absolutely must have this now. And that's what we're going for. Then we can layer the data on top of it, sorry, with uh, the product usage or surveys from there. But we would never want to start with them because we wouldn't know what questions to ask. Right. Okay. So let's make this tangible for the listener. Is there a, maybe a client story that you can share, maybe one that you've seen done really well that is publicly available? Can you talk to me about a a company that wanted to go through this exercise of identifying who their personas were, the ones they wanted to sell to, maybe segmenting their audience up into a variety of buyers and what the output looked like? So what was the actual document or, or the, the key criteria included in the persona. So kind of give me a real world example. So I'll give you one from a biotech startup out of San Francisco. They had have best in class technology that does more than anyone in, in the space, but we're seeing kind of uh, difficulties breaking out in categorization and being compared to competitors whose feature set is far more limited than theirs is, but was being perceived as being more comprehensive. And the big takeaway from that after dozens of these interviews was that the way that they were positioning of being the most reliable tool in the market wasn't connecting. So we did all of these interviews with uh, current users and potential users and found that the accuracy of the testing as a diagnostics tool was the most important thing. So we came back to them and we said, this is the criteria, the buying criteria. This is how you're perceived compared to competitors because your users care more about accuracy. And the team's response was, we know. We know that accuracy is the most important thing to them. That's what we call ourselves the most reliable. Mm -hmm. But to their customers, reliability was a measure of durability, how long the testing tool would last, which they didn't care about. The accuracy of the results, being confident they could act on the data, did. So things that we think of as being synonymous, the users may not. And what we come back with is a basically a, a flywheel of how people buy and then decide to keep using the product and then pair that with what it would take to get them to retain for additional purchases and renew and renew their subscription or refer others. Okay, let's take a quick time out. If you're listening to today's episode, I bet you're already imagining how you can apply all these ideas to your work. But before you go out and eagerly rewrite all of the copy on your website or change your whole marketing strategy, first, I need you to ask yourself this very important question. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt, who your most valuable customer segment is? If not, you're in trouble. You don't have time to waste by chasing the wrong customers. Even with all of these ideas from our amazing guests, if you're chasing the wrong people, 
it's going to feel like an uphill battle. But if you're ready to stop wasting time on marketing that doesn't work and attract more dream customers, then I've got something you are going to love. I put together a free tool just for you. I call it my customer ranking calculator. Now, in a matter of minutes, this quick exercise can help you to gain clarity around which customer segments you should focus on and which ones you may want to stop serving. That sounds good, right? So if you want to download this free tool, head on over to customercamp.co forward slash calculator. That's customercamp.co forward slash calculator. Okay, back to the show. I think that you hit on something that is such a problem inside of organizations, which is this, you know, this bias of knowledge where mm-hmm. we, we know too much or we think we know too much and we're using this insider language mm-hmm. or we're assuming our audience is perceiving the words we're using the same way we are. Mm-hmm. And you were able to go out as this kind of like unbiased third party and identify that there was this disconnect from what they thought they were saying and what their customers are hearing. And I love that example. So that leads me to another question. When it comes to putting together these personas and teams do come with those inherent biases, what can they do if they're going to do this research internally? Like what can they do to avoid not missing out on those signals that you were able to hear? The first thing is to make sure that the people who come to those meetings have come with two or three bullets written down, answering the questions that we care to address that day. Often they're things like, what is true about the company? What do we do better than anyone else? How do we want customers to feel when they work with us? And what would they do if we didn't exist? If people come into those meetings with two sticky notes or the virtual equivalent of that, then we have a a bigger variety of perspectives. And I often find this is too internal. The executives have filtered too many levels between the customer-facing teams. You should have a a customer support rep in those meetings, not just the VP they ladder up to, somebody who is on the phones every day, an account executive, not just the sales manager. And I find that there's too many levels between the people who are talking to customers every day and the people who are making the decisions, oftentimes in a way that it's, it's filtered. So when we have these hypotheses to test, when we have anchored in the criteria that we are of, of what makes our company better, that's what we want to have the hypotheses around that we then go and listen to methodically without any bias or, or judgment or assumptions when we talk to our customers. And talking to customers and talking to prospects should look different because people who have never heard of your product, have never interacted with your product, think and conceive of the problem that you're solving differently than those who do. And for these prospects, you want to say as little about the company as you can, because the second you say, hi, I'm Caitlin, here's what we do, and this is what I want to talk to you about today. Everything you've said has been filtered through the lens of what they think you want to hear, meaning you could be missing an even more compelling problem space because they just think it's not relevant to you. So you want to go out with saying as little as possible, making sure the discussion guide is adaptable. So if you find that you're asking a question that isn't particularly useful or needs to be clarified in a different way, make it adaptable for the existing, for the customer and prospect calls that come after that. But make sure that you're not confusing product research, customer research, buyer research, user research, and market research, because they're entirely disparate functions that need to be conducted differently. I love that. That's such a common mistake that teams make. You end up having Mm -hmm. 
three people from three different departments <laughs> jumping in, trying to be like, oh, we get to talk to a customer. Well, I have these questions and I have these questions and I have these questions. And ultimately, none of them really get what they need. Mm-hmm. And the customer is thrown about, bandied about. And I think that it's so true. An exercise back in my consulting days, an exercise I used to run through with teams was I would have these, these sets of questions, which were assumptions about the customer and the product and their unique place in the market, similar to what you addressed. And I'd have them all fill them out separately and then show reveal their answers. And oftentimes there was this big disconnect, even between the founding teams. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a great way for me to kind of really get buy-in that, oh, like, you know, we're not on the same page here. And so it makes sense for us to slow down a little bit, invest in some of this foundational work, because even though we want to jump right to like, what's the marketing strategy? Mm-hmm. Like, if we don't get here first, we're not going to get ultimately where we want to go. So it's so true. don't have the right people in that room, then you're missing yeah. out on so much. Yeah, and I find that this happens the most when the founding team built the product for themselves Mm. because they may think they understand the problem space, but it could have been six years since they were actually in a customer's office seeing what it looks like now. And so whenever teams will say, oh, we do talk to customers, we talk to customers all the time, my first question is, what do you ask them? And if it's, well, it changes every time, we don't really have the clear hypotheses that we're testing. And if it's, a little bit of exposure of we've kind of been ad hoc with what we've collected, there could be a lot of selective listening happening. So that discussion guide is key, but making sure it's adaptable to going forward. And again, a little bit of exposure could be worse than none because you may think you understand the solution space for people who look like you or look like the audience that you built for, but it could have evolved. And we, we run into what Andy Grove wants us about with hippos, the highest paid person's opinion. The second the C executive says something, everything is filtered through that lens. So they should go last. And um, oftentimes I'll make the CEO the note taker in the room to make sure they're really listening. That's such a great tip. I love that. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about negative personas. So we all know that typically a persona is around who do we want to have by? And when you have teams who may be going after different types, different segments of the market or have conflicting opinions about who's the most valuable, it's probably pretty good to make sure you get that out in the open. If there's people who aren't a good buyer, you want to get that out mm-hmm. in the open. So like, tell me, what is the purpose of creating a negative customer persona? The purpose at the end of the day is to make sure that we're not fragmenting our value proposition, which will erode our lifetime value and raise customer acquisition costs over time. A negative persona is somebody that we would not change our product or our marketing strategy around. But if they came to us organically, we may sell to them, but we wouldn't incorporate their feedback into a product roadmap. An anti-persona is somebody we don't want to sell to because they're going to fragment our brand equity and could raise our support tickets, could fragment the use cases, and wouldn't really understand that the value that they're not seeing is because of their use cases, not the products. So a negative persona, negative we think neutral, anti we think adjacent or avoid. So negative is somebody that we're not changing our pricing model, we're not weighting their behavior in the products, and we're not weighting their product requests because they're not reflective of the actual value proposition and the ideal behavior that we want to foster. 
Oh, okay. So cool. Can you give me an example? Like, is there a company that you've worked with where they had clearly defined personas, negative personas, that kind of neutral level and the anti, like, we do not want these people. Like we need to uh, like repel them (laughs) with our messaging. Is there one that comes to mind that, that clearly had defined those? Yes. Um, an ed tech company who was selling primarily into K through 12 public schools. When a K through 12 private school came to them, they were happy to sell to them, but they didn't change their marketing around or their go to market strategy around them. And when they made feature requests, they weren't deviating from the core audience base around them. An anti persona was when a hospital came to them, a, a really large HMO that anyone in the US will have heard of, uh, came to them and asked if they could purchase the product. But because they were confident that they wouldn't see the value the way the product was intended, they actually turned that customer down and said, this isn't built for you right now. Here's the recommendations we have. Where this becomes even more interesting is when the volume doesn't match up with the willingness to pay or or the net revenue. And what I mean by that is that it's really easy to have 70% of people surveyed say one thing. But if you haven't disaggregated what the negative personas or the cohorts within those are, it's very easy to miss that the majority of the differentiation that you have and the long-term revenue that you could hope to generate from the differentiation you have could be obfuscated by the fact that 70% of people said something, but 80% of the differentiation wasn't captured in that. So you want to be very clear about who fits on an account level and on a user level into the differentiation that you have. And keep in mind that what people want and what people are willing to pay for may not be the same thing. So a good way to do this is by leveling in a max diff or a conjoint survey to see the features that they care the most about. And then a Van Westendorp pricing model on top of that to have a matrix of what are people really valuing and what are they going to pay for? Because there could be feature sets like lifts traffic notifications, for example, that people really value. They like seeing Google Maps laid over their route in real time, but they're not willing to pay more for it. Same thing with Virgin America. They like the orchids, they like the hand towels, they like the purple lights, but they're not paying more for a flight because of it. And so the goal of these negative personas is to make sure that we are not conflating what people are willing to pay for and the ideal buyers with just a sheer number of people making a certain request that could deviate from our core differentiation. I love that. Okay, so you mentioned two different, you said a, two different surveys and a matrix. Can you name those again? Absolutely. I have a couple articles uh, on Forbes about them as well. But a max diff survey is essentially asking people to stack rank the feature sets or any aspect of the product in order of importance to them. And the, port, and the key thing here is that they have to choose. So they couldn't have a top. A, the Van Westendorp pricing model is considered one of the simplest ways to get a sense of willingness to pay with an acceptable to a too expensive range with just four questions. And if you layer the results of the two onto a XY axis, basically the four quadrant matrix, you can get a sense of where that willingness to pay and where the feature priorities can lie and overlap. 
right? And is that one of the exercises that you can leverage to help you identify, okay, these are the personas that we're really wanting to go after. They have the willingness to pay. They care about the features that are differentiated to us. And these ones, we while we thought that they were a good fit, like they don't care about the things that, that we were striving towards making us different and they were not willing to pay. So maybe if they come to us, great. And then there's other ones where they, you know, maybe they the features that they care about are ones that you never plan to build. So it's interesting that you say that. Now that you say that, I would imagine you could, but I usually do it the other way. When we're confident in the personas that we have, then we know who to ask the Maxif and the Van Westendorp pricing model on top of. But now that you say that, I would imagine that it's a good way to develop some of those cohorts in the opposite order too. So I'd be interested in exploring that. Well, it's interesting because one of the we're doing a survey currently right now to understand how marketers, specifically marketers that work with other companies, so we call them our marketers for hire, how they go into their clients' organizations and learn about their clients' customers. And mm-hmm. the fascinating part is that to no surprise of anybody who's ever been a marketer for hire, oftentimes your clients don't really know who their customers are, but they don't necessarily know that they don't know or they think that they know and aren't really willing to invest much time and energy into finding out, or they're really mm-hmm. protective of the the audience research because that's the thing that they bring to the table. Whereas if you're coming mm-hmm. in as an agency that does you know this one particular thing, they want to outsource that to you, but this, this strategic stuff, that's us. And so it's fascinating because I think that so often when you are entering those relationships as that, you know, marketer coming in from the outside, it's difficult to build that trust Mm -hmm. when the client either thinks that they know or they are not really interested in letting you spend too much time exploring that they just really want you to do the thing they hired you to do and I could see those two um, surveys that you just mentioned being a really good way to gut check the assumptions that those teams are making Mm -hmm. absolutely and sometimes just asking the questions of great, how was that developed? Or asking multiple people, who are your personas? Just coming back with, I've heard three different things. Or when we talk about this, the team seems to think this, this, and this, or they don't come to mind. These have to be living, breathing documents that get updated with the input that our customer-facing teams have. And so sometimes a good way to overcome that skepticism is just by saying, great, how were they developed? Who was involved? What are they? And if people have to say, oh, let me look it up. I forget. I think it was a couple of years ago. That could be a good segue into revisiting it too. Right. And that gets me to the next question I want to ask you. So when you are putting together these personas, let's say that you've identified through conversations with the team that there are certainly ones that should be developed for the negative and anti-personas. Maybe those don't exist. Mm-hmm. Where do you go about gathering the data that will inform those personas? So we typically would start with the customer facing teams thoughts about it, then doing sales look back data and then product usage analyses as well. Sometimes even customer support analysis too, to see if there was a high volume of tickets created by people who ultimately churned. Could we have predicted that with any kind of leading indicator even before acquisition? So because sometimes this breakdown between the goals of the acquisition team and the goals of retention aren't aligned. So that's the first place we would start. The hypotheses that the customer-facing teams had, but then putting some historic data on top of it based on what's happened in the past. And then if we can, talking to prospects or churned customers or 
existing customers who are at high risk of churning to understand what that looks like. Because typically there are leading indicators that should have been available even before acquisition. And if we can put a process around them, that's a good foundation for it. Out of curiosity, have you ever seen a team that had a belief around who may be, you know, a bad fit customer, that anti-persona, or, you know, we sell to them, but they're not really our people. And that ended up shifting, like they, as they continued to evolve the product, as demand continued to come in from those audiences, they made a kind of strategic pivot. Has that ever happened? Absolutely. And that typically comes at, I think, this adjacent user of people who could kind of go either way based on how they're using the product initially, have some indicators that show that they could see value and understanding what it would take to expand the value or to remove the friction of the onboarding from them is where that's most often valuable. Very cool. Okay. So let's say that you now have, your team has been brought in, they're smart, they brought it in outside of who knows this stuff inside and out. You now have these resources that you can socialize with the team, getting everyone on the same page. Tell me about how you typically go about sharing this information with the different stakeholders on the team. So we like to start with the kickoff meeting where people have come prepared with three core questions that we've developed with the executive team around the, the core problems to answer the core questions to address. And typically that means that we look at some surprises of some of the thoughts that we have are different than the others. And starting with that initial kickoff meeting gives us very clear buy-in to the hypotheses that we're testing, the questions that we hope to answer with our customer discovery process, because that becomes the foundation of the discussion guide. And then when we level in real quotes and the qualitative input that we have from these prospects and customers, it gives us even more to then delve into and put data on top of. And I think the really important thing here is that we always want the qualitative to come first because without that context, we can be making wildly unsupported claims with lots and lots of dashboards in ways that aren't always obvious. And that same process is something we come into with having people look at every dashboard and data set before a meeting coming written down with two conclusions they have and two questions that they have. Because we'll find that six people could look at the exact same dashboard and have very different conclusions because the data doesn't tell us why people are behaving in a certain way. It just shows us what is happening. And taken in silo, any data set can be interpreted to mean any different thing. And when people come and realize that they've concluded different things based on the same data set, Usually that's where the blind spots and the assumptions are found, but that doesn't happen when dashboards are looked at for the first time in a meeting. When somebody throws a dashboard up and says, see, email marketing just isn't working for us. Everyone goes, nod, 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 okay. But somebody could come with a different conclusion of we haven't been segmenting effectively. We don't have the right call to action or subject lines in our emails. That's something that we need to look at first. So this is very much a qualitative process of first we leverage the input, we let people think about and surface the points of divergence in their thinking in advance, put the qualitative discovery process to establish hypotheses, and then the quantitative look back data or product analysis to make sense of what we're seeing in mass and to either surface areas of divergence or give us an idea of if what we've heard in these relatively few, a couple dozen discovery calls is supported by the data we see at large. And that's often the foundation then of a survey. I think this is so brilliant because the thing that you're doing 
that I think often gets missed is in recognizing that it's not just enough for everyone to be seeing the same information, even mm-hmm. if that information is being gathered using really rigorous and, you know, like supported research methodologies, they are going to draw different conclusions from that information. Mm-hmm. And if you don't carefully ask what conclusions they're drawing and give them the opportunity to do that in a space where, you know, like you said, you know, it's not the highest paid person's opinion wins, then that risk of somebody just staying quiet around, well, I kind of thought it was this. And then that brilliant insight that they had being missed is Mm -hmm. there. So it's not just about helping them to find the right information. It's really very much about helping them to find consensus around what's important and what they are striving for going forward. Am I hearing you correctly? Absolutely. And we kind of come back to where we started, which is I think of a lot of the skepticism and the debate around whether personas are useful comes from this misapplication and the the miss of the methodology. And if we do something like a survey first, we have no idea the wording that's actually going to elicit the kinds of responses that we care about. And so if we just survey our users without actually asking longer form qualitative questions first, the data we have is worse than none at all. The personas that we have if we do this wrong is worse than none at all. Making decisions just by looking at dashboards is worse than having none at all because we have these completely unmitigated assumptions that we think we have answers to. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's the problem, too, is the confidence because you're being data driven, quote unquote, when that data, as you said, it tells you what's happening, but not why. And all the conclusions that, that people are drawing are different, but they're often very confident in those mm-hmm. right. because they came from data. I love that George Bernard Shaw quote, beware of false knowledge. It's more dangerous than ignorance because we think we know and we don't. That's why most marketing experiments aren't actually experiments. They're just kind of hucking things at Facebook and Instagram and email and thinking we see what works. But if we don't have control groups, we don't have clear hypotheses, we can't say something like Facebook is the highest performing channel because maybe we segmented that better or the creative and the copy and the call to action were more compelling than an email. We just don't know. And so oftentimes companies are worse off running these ad hoc experiments, I'll say experiments loosely, than if they did nothing and just talk to people because they think they have data to act on and that doesn't scale. So Rebecca, let me ask you, I know that with your background previously being an in-house marketer, you worked with a lot of fast growing companies. Like let's say that some of the listeners may be at smaller early stage companies. Some of them might be at mature companies that have resources and the, you know, research ops teams and that sort of thing. Maybe there's a big variance. So talk Mm -hmm. to me a little bit about how, you might suggest you could alter some of this work if you're at a very small company with not a lot of resources to put into this effort versus, you know, larger teams that have the, have the capacity to take on a bigger lift. How do you typically prescribe it differently depending on who you're working with? I would say that it can be iterative and it doesn't have to be complicated and it doesn't have to be expensive. Whatever tools you're currently using are fine. If it just means capturing customer feedback in a spreadsheet after every call by certain criteria, eventually keywords will come up, certain pillars will come up with the problems you're looking to solve. And then before you know it, you have some great customer quotes and stories that can be the foundation of this work and can happen in evolution, which is great because again, these personas shouldn't be static documents done once every couple of years. They should be updated based on what you're hearing. 
And so I would say it could be a Google spreadsheet just by listing out the attributes. You may not know what's important at the time. So just listing out company size, type, title, use case, product usage, time of sign up, total number of users, whatever it feels like is actually driving the engagement. Again, this can be a spreadsheet. And then now you have a hypothesis of it looks like customers who sign up in these key cyclical times who are doing this 30 days later tend to retain better and have an upsell or cross-sell opportunity at this point. Can we get some data around that? So you'll have these hypotheses come up if you're being systematic about capturing it. And just being clear on what is the question you hope to solve? What is the point of any of this? And when you start with that, the types of data you need, the types of questions you want to ask become much more obvious. Such a good point. Okay, so let's leave the listeners on a high note. Let's let them get see the get a taste of how good life can be when you start applying some of this foundational work and really getting it right. So do you have a story you can share about a company that invested some time to make sure that the, everyone across the team understood who the personas were, that everyone was selling to the same people and that, that they were refining their messaging and then kind of like how that applied to their marketing or their sales or led to growth opportunities. Any stories you can share? Sure. We're working with a really awesome team within a Fortune 500 company. And we started with the goal of doing this persona work around their buyer's journey. And the very first thing we did was we asked them to tell us what the mission was, the mission of the company, and write it down. And no one said the same thing. And when we asked them the same question about who their partners were, no one said the same thing. And so this was a really great foundation for them to see firsthand that even though there were thoughts, everyone thought they knew, the lack of alignment was actually costing them opportunities to work cross-functionally. And when we did this research and had something simple that people could remember, and it was part of every meeting, it was the difference between 48% uh, revenue growth in a single year. And the retention rate has been doubling since we did this two years ago. Love it. Yeah, which is great. And again, this just is all to say, it should be simple. It should be living. It should be how you start meetings, how you think of making decisions. And the goal of these personas is just to make decisions easier. The positioning should be clear when you know the problems the channels that'll be affected become clear when you know the problems. And if you can't remember it, it's too complicated. Great point. And when it comes to, yes, these being living documents, them being at the forefront of all the team's mind, do you have any tips for, again, how to kind of like share these within a team? Is I've seen some teams will like blow it up and it's on the wall. Other teams have it as like a background on everyone's desktop computer, like any tips for how to make sure that people are being reminded and, and that when changes are made, that those are trickling down to everyone who needs to know. It's a great question. The novelty of the application really helps. People tend to stop reading things on the wall. They don't remember it. But if you have a different person who's de the designated value driver of that meeting, a different person who's responsible for coming with a customer story about a use case, a customer story about living their values, or a teammate shout out of how someone on the team has served this use case or represented their values. If it's different every meeting, you're reminded again of these core values, these core use cases, these core personas, but it's not so much that people's eyes are glossing over because if you just read the mission at the beginning, you just read the personas off, people think they've heard, so they tune out. If a different person at any seniority level is responsible every meeting to have a new story of it, people listen. 
That's brilliant. I think it also, it creates that buy-in because we care about things that we feel ownership over. It's that mm-hmm. endowment effect where like, if you give a university student that like a mug and you tell them it's their mug and then they're asked like, well, how much do you sell this for? Suddenly the people that it, it belonged to them thought that the mug was far mm-hmm. more valuable than the people who were just evaluating like a general mug. Mm-hmm. And so that endowment effect of like making it everyone's and letting them take ownership over those stories and the the use case and the evolution because i mean with so many companies this Mm -hmm. is an evolving thing it evolves as your product evolves it evolves as the market evolves it evolves as market changes and i think that's such a great way to to really crystallize it into the team and make it and give them ownership and I think what you just said is what a lot of executives feel like they have to be the source of the answers. A lot of companies feel like they have to be the source of what the cu- customers want and tell it to them. But if you bring the customers into that process, you bring the team into that process, it's better and they'll remember it more. More Because one of the things that we often do in our research is we play the audio clips from the customer. Because it's one thing for me to say, you know, mm-hmm. this is an important point. It's quite another thing where I can play three clips of customers saying that this mattered to them. Whereas when I say it, it's, you know, it's a data point. When, when the customers say it, it feels real. Definitely. And the novelty of it, of a different customer saying something different, clicks differently. We don't have to get too clever with that. Great. Okay. So I know that people are going to want to learn a lot more from you. You mentioned that you're a contributor to Forbes. So we'll make sure that we link to your writer profile there so people can read all the stuff you've written. Is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd love for people to check out? What are you up to that people should know about? We're actually in the process of publishing a guide that's previously only been available to our clients about our process of how to launch products. And I would love for any of your listeners to check that out. It'll be on our website, strategica.partner. Fantastic. And we're going to put a link to your website. And so if people want to learn more about you, we're going to link to your Forbes bio. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing with us with me today. I learned even more than I was expecting. So, and as somebody who's like a research nerd, you just schooled me in some really cool methods that I had not, that I didn't know about. So thank you. Thank you. It's been fun talking with you. Hey there. I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening to the show. I absolutely love getting nerdy with you and our guests each week. It is just so much fun. And speaking of nerdy marketing stuff, have you heard about the power of reciprocity in marketing? Reciprocity is one of the best methods you can use to persuade people to take action. It's simple. Give something small for free before you ask for a sale. You see this all the time in marketing. Sometimes it's a free sample, a free trial, or even a free podcast like this one. With that in mind, I've got a small favor to ask. If you've gotten at least one aha moment while listening to the show, could you go to Apple Podcasts and give Customer Show a five-star rating? It'll only take a few seconds, and ratings are really the best way to help new people discover the show. I see every rating and am beyond grateful for each one. And who knows, maybe one day you'll need something from me, and then I can return the favor for you. So thanks again.